0: Java. Java. NATO, just one month to get its act together for the summit. The dam busters get the first four F-35s, but how many can we afford?
1: Well, it's a great moment. We're very pleased to be back. The clouds part as we came over the UK and we could uh, start to see our home base from the air for the first time.
0: And cyber skills, is it jobs for the fat 40-somethings with their own laptops? Defence Ministers are meeting for the first time at the new NATO headquarters in Brussels today and tomorrow. The Alliance is facing some of its biggest issues since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s. And this meeting will look at the military agenda that's being prepared for next month's summit meeting, which comes at a time when British forces will be getting a new defence review. Well, I'm joined by Jonathan Isle, International Director at the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, BFBS Defence Analyst. Hello to both of you. Um, Jonathan Isle, NATO does not simply think about Europe. So what are first the military issues for the alliance?
2: Well, the the first and the most important one is the one traced by uh, James Mattis, the American uh, Secretary of Defense, which is to make the alliance much more robust, much more able to deploy its forces. So there's two elements that are being discussed today by the NATO Defense Ministers. The first one is the creation of a Joint Force Command for the Atlantic, which will be based in Norfolk, Virginia, in the United States. And the second one is the creation of a Another rapid response force on top of the theoretical two that the Alliance has, uh, one that will be operational by 2020 and will give the Alliance what it lacks most, most, the ability to deploy large numbers of troops within the European continent very quickly.
0: Mm, And those are in, in response to international politics. What are the international politics dictating NATO thinking?
2: Well. The most important one is, of course, the challenge of Russia. Now, nobody is suggesting that Russia is about to invade tomorrow, but what is happening is that the Russian government is deliberately challenging countries on the border with Russia or very near Russia, like the Baltic states, but also the southern flank of the alliance, um, by suggesting that the alliance is incapable of defending its own member state should there be any kind of invasion. So it's a question of credibility ability of Article 5 of the mutual security guarantee of the alliance which uh, is driving um, a lot of governments. The the, the problem is that many of the reinforcement procedures uh, were last rehearsed uh, at the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s and were almost never rehearsed on the territories of the new member states that joined since. Mm. So there is a question of credibility vis-à-vis Moscow and it's not a question of sabre-rattling like Moscow is suggesting.
0: Of course, our Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson is there and he's announced, Christopher, that the RAF will be conducting policing missions over Estonia and Iceland on behalf of NATO. How significant do you think that is?
1: Well, if you put it in the great context, it's not particularly significant at all, other, th- other than it's got to be done. And so he announces it on the day that defence ministers are actually meeting in Brussels, and that's fine. I think what we, we have a bigger uh, problem, which we've had since 4th of April 1949, when NATO was formed here. Let's take 20, was it 27, 28 nations. Each one has a domestic and a financial and economic uh, principle that it's got to follow. And how does it fit its NATO commitment within that principle? Also, uh, as um, as, as, it, as you get with Jonathan was saying about identifying the credibility of, let's say, Russia. Is it, is it really a threat? Is it not a threat? Each country has a different view of what that means. Each country has a different view of how you respond and what contribution it can make. And there is NATO's problem. That it's no longer just a European organization. it has interests that spread right out across to, uh, across to uh, Afghanistan, as we've seen in a meeting in London this morning, for example, the great discussions of where you go go from here in Af- in, in Afghanistan. and therefore I think that is the, that is the great problem. NATO is the sum of its parts, and nobody says that's perfect, but the issues that it faces today are probably more complicated than they were when the issue was rather simple, like having a cold war.
0: Jonathan what do you see as the great unsolvable zen at NATO?
2: It's exactly what we've heard a second ago. It is the question of unanimity, of seeing what are the main security threats to the continent and how much countries are prepared to contribute towards it. Uh, In the little unspoken story of the last 18 months of the Trump presidency was that while newspapers and politicians uh, bemoan the fact that President Trump is not interested in Europe, the reality is uh, that the Defense Department, the Pentagon in Washington, has invested more more in NATO than um, for many, many years before, probably most than since the end of the Cold War, both in terms of uh, additional cash and in terms of troops and in terms of commitment, uh, like the discussion about uh, improving the response forces of the Alliance. So it's up to the Europeans to pick up the pieces, as it were, uh, from the American uh, um, Defence Ministry, which has been, as I say, much more committed to the Alliance than before.
0: Mm, Let's talk uh, more specifically about President Putin Christopher Lee Um, what does he do about things like Russian involvement in Syria now?
1: It's a very good point uh, about Mr Putin Putin, uh, at the moment Um, He has proved to Syria at least, but he has proved to that part of the world, that he will honor his commitment. I mean, once he gets in, it's very difficult to get out. And this is where he's got to the moment with Syria. It is actually difficult to get out to that commitment. And if you go back to the 79 to 89 commitment that he had in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, where eventually politically... Russia had to get out. It needed to find a way out because it it was having a bad effect at home. This is what we don't take necessarily as a a perfect example of what's going on in Syria. But at some point, he has got to be doing something different than what he's doing now. And how does he support, for example, President uh, Assad? And then he looked further. And he's looking, for example, at North Korea. And uh, when he sent his foreign minister to North Korea to have a word with Kim Jong-un, and he said, look, Come over to Moscow, come and have a look at Moscow, come and have a chat with us, come and see what you think. And, and Kim said, "I'm coming. I'll be there." Now Moscow, or, or Mr. Putin, is saying we ought to be there in, in, in North Korea, while what's going on is going on, because we'll have to a, we'll have to take a position on the Security Council in the United Nations, that we also have an interest in what's going on there for our own use, for other nations. We mustn't be left out of any of these things, and then you get something else, which is quite entirely, quite entirely different. You get what's going on, in, in, and there's a game change going on in in, in Rome with the with the government of uh, of Italy, and they're saying we actually like Mr. Putin, we actually like Russia, mm. we think we shouldn't sort of keep going around and sort of bad mouthing him, etc. And sanctions, etc. And so his broader picture is not simply the one we see, and that is whether it's Estonia or whether it's Ukraine or whether it's it's Syria it's a global picture and the only difference is that it doesn't extend beyond uh, below the equator
0: uh, Jonathan Isle, um you were talking about the extra money the Americans are putting into the alliance. In the history of NATO, in what shape do you judge it to be? Do you think the alliance is in a healthy state or is it facing its biggest challenges yet, do you think?
2: It's not facing its biggest challenge. Arguably, there were bigger challenges in the late 1960s when there was a discussion about detent with the Soviet Union and no clear idea what purpose the alliance would serve and when we did have similar burden-sharing disputes. But it is clear that it is facing an existential challenge. Whether it's the biggest or not is probably less important. It is facing an existential challenge. You've got a president in the United States which does who does see the alliance as very much a transactional business. You've got European governments who do have a different view about how to deal with Russia. You have new member states who are clinging to the alliance uh, because they do see it as the bedrock of their existence. And you've got a country like Britain which is calibrating its position now away from the European Union, but still in Europe and paradoxically now with NATO being the only fundamental security structure in a global sense or in a European sense that Britain has. So you've got this push and pull factors from all directions in trying to paper over these cracks has been what the alliance has been doing for the last 10 years i doubt this can continue
1: can i just make a very small point on this we what we have is that um, president trump believes he knows how to deal with russia nato as a group by and large does not know how it deals with russia and that is a conundrum worth sort of pondering so
0: what might uh, the consequences of that be jonathan isle
2: Well, the consequences of that will have to be seen when we have the summit in July. Uh, the, The real problem, the real imponderable for the Europeans is that we don't know which President Trump we're going to get are we going to get a president that at the end of the day after all the scoffing and the threatening noises accepts the alliance and accepts to work within the alliance after all he's got his own constraints back home about dealing with Russia too openly or are we going to get a president who will keep banging the table about the 2% uh, contribution and about the ungrateful Europeans in which case nothing serious can be discussed.
0: right, Jonathan Ayer from thank you for joining us today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the RAF's first new F-35 lightning jets finally arrive on British soil and civilian casualties in conflict. Who is keeping count?
3: BFBS sit SITREP.
0: Well, part of that NATO meeting is about force modernisation and a good example of that flew into the UK yesterday, the first operational American-built F-35s for the Royal Air Force to join the Dambuster Squadron. They landed last night at their new home, RF Marham, Norfolk, and were greeted by the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier. Sean Grezczyk was there.
4: They're designed to be close to invisible to radar and weapon systems, the epitome of stealth. But their arrival in the UK was understandably the opposite. A chance to show off four of the new multi-million pound jets as they flew in from the US. It was quite a spectacle as they arrived. They'd set off from the base they've been training at in South Carolina and flew thousands of miles crossing the Atlantic, a journey which took around nine hours. The officer commanding 617 Squadron, Wing Commander John Butcher, told me it was a good flight. The, uh, the weather was nice, it was favourable all the way across uh, all the way across the Atlantic, and uh, it was actually quite enjoyable. And certainly, you know, coming into the into the overhead of RAF Marham and landing here for the first time, a really a really special moment. He flew in alongside Lieutenant Commander Adam Hock.
1: Well, it's a great moment. We're very pleased to be back. The clouds parted as we came over the UK, and we could uh, start to see our home base from the air for the first time. Um, I must say that there's been a lot of work that's gone into us being here, a number of years of work both with the Marines and from uh, from the UK side over in America to enable us to be here.
4: The advanced warplanes will conduct missions and operations from the Royal Navy's Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers. I asked Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier when they'll be fully operational and if that would be by the end of the year.
5: So that's their plan, is by the end of uh, this year we'll have our initial operational capability. Uh, we'll be working up towards that point. That will include operating uh, with the uh, aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, and we're aiming to have a full carrier strike capability by 2020.
4: Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Ben Key was also there to greet the pilots.
5: There is a huge excitement both intellectually and emotionally. I, you know,
1: I had the sadness of seeing the last of the Harriers fly off HMS Illustrious when I was in command 10 years ago, and now we're seeing that region generation of a carrier strike capability. And it's such a step forward from
5: that which we had then.
4: The government has pledged to buy a total of 138 jets, but with the first 48 costing more than £9 billion, and with mounting budget pressures as defence spending is under review, will the 138 be fully met, and will they all be F-35Bs? There have been suggestions that some might be F-35As, a question that I put to the Defence Minister, Gitte Beck.
1: Well, as you know, the initial order was for 48 planes, which are the B variant. Uh, The commitments for 138 is a clear commitment, but in terms of the actual nature of the balance, that's still to be decided, and as you know, we're going through the modernising defence programme at this point in time, so there'll be decisions to be made.
4: For years, we've been told these jets are a key part of the RAF and Royal Navy's future. The arrival of the first four F-35s is a huge milestone. In a few weeks' time, more will arrive as this new chapter finally begins to take shape. Sean Gwezchek, Forces News, RAF
0: Maram. Well, the F-35 is billed as the most advanced aircraft the world has ever seen. But can the MOD afford it? Well, Paul Beaver is an aviation analyst. Hello, Paul. Uh, Do you think the UK will buy the full complement of the 138 or will they cut the order?
5: I think at the moment uh, all the bets are off on this. We have to see what's going to happen in uh, in modernisation of defence, the new programme which the Secretary of State uh, Is looking at at the moment that should report in July Uh, but of course it won't really have any money until the comprehensive spending review next March so uh, at the moment that the uh, I I think the the options are still there we've got the places on the line for for the aircraft Um, and of course there isn't a UK benefit from ordering the aircraft because uh, British companies contribute to it so Mm. there's a whole there's a whole sort of raft of, of, of politics that goes on. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, it would, be good, it would be good to get the 48. That will give uh, both the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy a capability which it just doesn't have at the moment.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about the capability. What exactly do we get from these 48B variants?
5: Well, the, it's a really interesting aeroplane because uh, it, it's the first day of the war type aeroplane. Um, it can go forward and do strikes um, the way in which both the navy and the air force are looking at it at the moment is to be as agile as possible. In other words, what they want it to be able to do um, is to uh, operate off the carrier when they when they need to, but it it can go ashore and operate off well-founded bases. This is not a Harrier; it can't go and operate on a It has to go and operate on a proper uh, air base somewhere. But that allows a different way of looking at defense and different way of looking at offense as well so it will have those, those capabilities we, we mustn't think about it as a harrier replacement this is a completely new uh capability for both uh, the royal navy and the royal air force and it's going to take some time for them to bed in i mean 2020 is the full operating capability of, of strike component. it's going to take a few more years before we really know what the full uh, capability of this air, aircraft is and design um, the operating constraints around it.
0: Yeah, um, it's, been, it's been mentioned that it was supposed originally to be, be here in operational, what, six years ago? Does it really matter in the grand scale of things when we get these kind of delays?
5: It, it doesn't because we haven't been at war, thank goodness. But uh, if you look at uh, aircraft these days, they do take a long time. Uh, to get fully into service and we have had the typhoon in service now for what a decade it's still developing there will still be more versions of that coming along uh look at the merlin helicopter we've had that for 20 20 years we've got a new i'm I'm speaking to you from from down in in cornwall where cold rose is the base of the anti-submarine version the, the mark ii um that is that is working um working up now to a new capability the mark four just arrived at at the and somerset you know if you look at all these things they take time Mm. we don't swap our aircraft over every five or six years anymore we're going to keep the f-35 we'll keep the typhoon as well um to 20 uh 2040 or beyond and the carrier of course will have a 50 year life so everything these days is stretched because you can inject technology and new developments through software and through the computing uh, capabilities of these aircraft
0: yeah and as you said earlier because we don't yet know the conclusions of the modernizing defense program we don't know for Mm. sure whether we'll get whether the UK will get hundred and thirty-eight of these aircraft in the end if there is a a change in the type of variant of the the remaining Mm. aircraft perhaps to save money uh, what how does that change the capability what what is the a version for example not capable of that
5: the B is? Well, the, the difference with the A version, it, it, it's, it's a, an airbase aircraft, it's not a maritime aircraft, so it would have to operate from air airbases. Um, and it, that means that it doesn't have some of the constraints within the B, it doesn't have um, the spare engine for just for landing, um, for example, so you have got the capability there to take more further. So this is the argument that some people are using, saying why we should go for air, uh, for, for A's. If we have the 48Bs, actually that's good news because um, that means that both aircraft carriers will have that capability of being able to mount in a in a war situation, carrier air groups with both of them and we'll still have the training capability behind. So 48 is enough for the two carriers. Um, we want to do more, of course, and we want to do more with them. I think at the moment um, that, that it's too... Difficult to call whether or not we're going to have the full complement of 138, um, and whether they'll all be Bs or not. We'll have to see what happens not just in this current round of uh, uh, of defence spending uh, and the examination of the comprehensive spending review, but then what happens uh, in the next um, SDSR, which is in the next uh, spending rich, uh, uh,
0: review. Sounding a bit windy where you are, uh, Paul Christopher Lee. Your thoughts on the arrival of these Lightning 2 aircraft?
1: Just take off into the wind, old man. That's all you have to remember. <laughs> hey, listen. Um, there is one uh, uh, one piece of paper called uh, FJ 30 uh, which is on the on the Defence Secretary's desk at the moment about these aeroplanes. It says, "Tell me what I've got to expect to be able to do with this mix of aircraft." and tell me which ones. Don't tell me that um, the comprehensive, uh, comprehensive spending review is the, is the key to this. Tell me what you want me to do with these aeroplanes before I can go and fight for them in Cabinet.
0: All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Paul Beaver, thank you for your time today. The
3: FBS Zip Rep.
0: Now, Amnesty International has asked Britain to come clean about its role in the deaths of hundreds of civilians during last year's campaign to liberate the Syrian city of Raqqa. The charity says it can show the extent of the civilian casualties caused by US-led coalition strikes in the fight against Islamic State militants. Donatella Rivera is Amnesty International's senior crisis response advisor. I asked her if she accepted the MOD's response to the report which says the armed
3: forces do all they can to minimize the risk to civilian harm? Well, no, because the MOD has until now not provided the details that we specifically required um, to try and understand uh, exactly what measures did they take to minimise civilian casualties. For example, when we talk about the airstrikes that killed so many civilians, Obviously, something went terribly wrong because so many civilians were killed. The question is, what is it that went wrong? Was it that the intelligence was not uh, accurate enough? Uh, Were those who were launching the strikes not verifying the targets that were being called in by the local um, Kurdish-led militias? Uh, Was there a problem of malfunctions with the munition, where there issues of human error all of these are possibilities and there is absolutely no reason for the coalition forces and the and the uh, uk mod to make available the information that we have required about exact location uh, uh, dates and times munitions that were used and intended targets There is absolutely no security rationale for not making that information available post facto now. Um, There is also no reason at all why the coalition forces in their entirety, including the British um, component, are not on the ground in Raqqa doing proper investigation into the aftermath of the strikes that they conducted because the strikes killed a lot of people. Uh, those people have families, those strikes happened when homes were bombed. The ruins of their homes are there in Raqqa. And site visits and interview with survivors and witnesses are crucial elements of any investigation worthy of that name. So it is quite baffling that that work is not being carried out at all.
0: Donatella Rivera. Well, Chris Woods is leader of the Air Wars Project, which tracks and archives international military actions in conflict zones. Uh, Chris, good to speak to you. There are bound to be civilian fatalities in military action like that of RACO. Why doesn't the coalition admit to them?
6: Well, they they have certainly admitted to uh, a handful of deaths during the five-month uh, operation, the assault on Raqqa. Um, they've admitted to having killed, I think, 21 civilians. The problem is that the actual civilian death toll in that very fierce battle to our so-called Islamic State uh, cost many, many times more lives than that. Uh, Minimum estimate, according to NGOs um, and local monitors, is at least 2,000 civilians died overall as a result of uh, the fighting from all parties and perhaps double that number. We may never know the true count. Uh, And our own estimate here at Air Wars is that at least 1,400 civilians Uh, were killed directly as a result of uh, coalition air and artillery strikes so that gulf between 21 admitted deaths and and a minimum of 1400 civilians uh, tragically killed in that fight that that's the challenge and that's the concern that that we and others have that the coalition while it's admitting a small number of deaths isn't really facing up to what really did go wrong uh, for civilians in that battle uh, last year
0: and and you uh often oppressing the MOD for clarity on airstrikes, on the cost to civilians. How much effort do you witness the MOD making in finding out what happened in various airstrikes and how many civilians were killed or injured?
6: Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, the MOD is the most transparent of all of the uh, militaries involved in the operag- operation against so-called Islamic State. So the, the the UK tells us far more about where, when and what they bombed than any other country. And we, we very much welcome that. And that means that we can cross-reference those reports of where the UK blames against the public record and identify where British aircraft uh, potentially were and often were not implicated in civilian harm events. The UK tells us that they struck around 200 targets in Raqqa during the five-month operation, and, and France, I think, around 50 airstrikes reported. Really, though, the bulk of the destruction at Raqqa was American. 95% of the airstrikes and all of the artillery strikes were Uh, So while we would expect potentially some harm from British actions, it's the Americans here who really need to do the the accounting for what went wrong. And uh, compared, for example, with their their conceding of harm at the Battle of Mosul last year, we've really seen a significant collapse in interest from the Americans in admitting casualties from their actions.
0: Admitting or actually trying to do the accounting?
6: Well, I I mean, they are still going through the process, but if we look at the coalition's monthly civilian casualty report, which came out a couple of days ago, uh, they assessed almost 75 incidents in the last month uh, relating to the battle for Rekha and uh, gave themselves a clean bill of health on every single case. They Mm. didn't find civilian harm in a single event. The problem, of course, is that almost all the destruction at Rekha resulted from coalition, well, really American actions. Uh, And so, you know, there's no doubt that these civilians died. We know the names, we know their ages, we know how they died, we know where they died. Um, What we're not getting is anyone accepting responsibility. Now, it's obviously important to say there were ground forces involved as well, Um, the Kurdish forces that these air and artillery strikes were supporting and so-called Islamic State were committing atrocities, opening fire on civilians, using mortars uh, and other means as well. So so all these deaths certainly can't be laid at the door of the coalition, but probably most of them can.
0: All right, Chris Woods, good to speak to you today. That's Chris Woods from Air Wars. Thank you. Now, the outgoing Chief of the Defence Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach, says the military needs more cyber experts to counter the increasing threat from potential enemy intelligence gatherers. He even says they don't have to pass any battle fitness tests. Uh, Christopher Lee, can you be fat and 40 and do what he wants you to do? What,
1: what me? What, me, me. Not you mean? <laughs> not No, not me. Good Lord, no. <laughs> no 40, Fitness well. and <laughs> Um... Uh, Listen, what we're not suggesting is that people are taking into the services in the normal way and they have to do a battle fitness test, etc., etc. We're talking about... We're talking about reserves here. uh, Not entirely reserves, but yes, but we're talking about, for example, I uh, was speaking to somebody in in the Navy, in the comms, in in communications. Um, They've been there for 10 years, normal career, coming out of the Navy, is going to GCHQ to do that sort of uh, earwigging job. Um, that he was doing in a in a ship. There's that side of it. But the point is, this is this is not a sort of uh, you know we'll meet you on the front line type of job. This is very much as a, it's it, it's a constant brain job. You have a special expertise, and the chances are you're not after two years going to go off to another job where you okay. need sort of other expertise. So
0: a, a brain job, as you say. But well, what about I call the, it the physical training part of it? Because that must add to the discipline, though, and have its part to play.
1: Well, it does. But don't forget, it's, it's not just one person going to sit in a, in a room or an office. Uh, it's people are in banks of, uh, before screens, et cetera, and different bits of kit. Um, if somebody goes wobbly uh, <laughs> on the job, then there are people to look after them. You know, it'll be noticed. Uh, he's got the right idea. Has anybody here got their own laptop, know how to do the job, Uh, and can come along and do it. That's all we're looking for at this stage. It's that sort of job.
0: And that's all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments, or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode by subscribing to this show as a podcast from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.
3: The best of British
1: news. Sport and entertainment. For the British forces overseas.
4: This
6: is BFBS Radio 2. Later.